of repentance, uh, but let's go ahead and pray together this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you uh, for the opportunity we have now to study the Word of God together. And Lord, there is uh, no greater privilege than to be able to study the attributes and the greatness of our God. And this morning, Lord, as we consider the subject of repentance, uh, Father, we know we are, we are diving into a very deep but vitally important subject. Lord, I pray that over the weeks that we study this particular chapter and we study uh, this doctrine, Lord, that our hearts would be uh, directed in the right place, that our hearts would be directed to our God and to our Savior. Lord, we know that we are incapable of even discerning any bit of Bible truth apart from the discerning power of the Spirit. And this morning, Lord, we certainly pray that the Spirit opens our eyes to the truth in which we'll see today. Father, we do pray you'll be with those that are away from us this morning. Uh, Lord, a, a few that are not feeling well today. We just pray, uh, Lord, that you would touch them and raise them up. Uh, but that, Lord, they would also be able to just grow during this time of affliction. Uh, Father, we thank you and we praise you for who you are. We thank you for sending your only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world uh, to pay for the sin of his own. And how we today can rejoice because our names are written in heaven. We thank you and we praise you. And it's in Christ's name I ask these things. Amen. All right, so chapter number 15 in the confession this morning. Uh, we'll begin the section that's entitled, Of Repentance Unto Life and Salvation. Of Repentance Unto Life and Salvation. Uh, you will notice if you have a copy of the confession, there are five paragraphs in this particular uh, chapter uh, uh, dealing with various aspects of repentance. It is important to notice that the title there uh, tells us it is of repentance unto life and salvation. Uh, very important that we make note of that. Uh, there is this principle that we're going to learn today about how repentance has a purpose and that it is truly unto life and salvation. Uh, so we don't want to miss how the writers of the confession labeled that chapter. Uh, I have run across over the past few weeks, I've run across a couple of versions of the confession that just simply says of repentance, and it leaves out that second part of that unto life and salvation. But I think it's very important uh, that we look at that. I want to look at these in a very uh, high overview this morning. And so let's look together at paragraph one. It tells us, it says, such of the elect that are converted at riper years having sometime lived in the state of nature and therein served diverse lusts and pleasures, God in their effectual calling giveth them repentance unto life. Paragraph two, whereas there is none that doth good and sinneth not, and the best of men may, through the power and deceitfulness of their corruption dwelling in them, with the prevalency of temptation, fall into great sins and provocations, God hath in the covenant of grace mercifully provided that believers so sinning and falling be renewed through repentance unto salvation. Paragraph three, this saving repentance is an evangelical grace, whereby a person being by the Holy Spirit made sensible of the manifold evils of his sin doth by faith in Christ humble himself for it with godly sorrow 
detestation of it and self-abhorrency, praying for pardon and strength of grace with a purpose and endeavor by supplies of the Spirit to walk before God unto all well-pleasing in all things. Paragraph 4. As repentance is to be continued through the whole course of our lives upon the account of the body of death, and the motions thereof, so it is every man's duty to repent of his particular known sins particularly. And paragraph 5. Such is the provision which God hath made through Christ in the covenant of grace for the preservation of believers unto salvation, that although there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, yet there is no sin so great that it shall bring damnation on them that repent which makes the constant preaching of repentance necessary. So this particular chapter of the confession really outlines the various aspects, not only of what repentance is, but makes particular and pays close attention to specific individuals. Uh, it, it, the very first paragraph when we get into that makes reference to people, the elect, who are converted in their riper years or in their older years. And that's going to open up a fascinating uh, can of worms when we deal with that because there's, there's some things that this immediately makes us think about uh, that we'll study that together. Paragraph 2 as an overview just reminds us that uh, there is nobody who does good and can claim that they do not sin. I like the confession writers even used, and the best of man may. Um, I don't know what the confession writers had in mind when they said who qualifies as the best of men, but notice it says the very best of men through the power and deceitfulness of their corruption, uh, they will fall into great temptations uh, and great sins and provocations. But God has provided a merciful way back. Uh, that's kind of the highlight of paragraph two. Uh, notice paragraph three is saving repentance is an evangelical grace. Uh, this is something that is given to us. Uh, this is the gift of repentance. Repentance is not something that we conjure up in our minds. It's not something that we aspire ourselves to. We, we don't wake up one morning and say, I think it sounds like a good day to repent. Uh, we are empowered by the Spirit uh, to be able to make sense of what we're seeing. I love what the confession writer said, to make sensible of the manifold evils of his sin. The Spirit, if you will, puts his finger upon uh, our own sin, and now we recognize it uh, for what it is. And so there's, of course, uh, paragraph 3 goes on and mentions uh, the strength of grace and pardon. Paragraph 4, uh, by way of a summary, repentance teaches us that it is to be continued through the whole course of our lives. Uh, we're going to learn that repentance is not a one-and-done type of a situation. Uh, there are some that teach repentance is a one-time thing, that once you repent, all of your sins are removed as far as the east is from the west, and you are no longer capable of sinning. That's not what the confession writers had in mind, because that's not what the scriptures teach. Uh, but we understand that this is the entire course of our lives uh, will be marked by repentance. And then we see that that provision in paragraph 5 is a provision that God made through Christ. And notice, for the preservation of believers unto salvation. But I love that last part. There is no sin so small. Think about this for a moment. There's no sin so small that is unworthy of damnation. The smallest sin deserves to be, be, be reconciled or repaid with the worst possible scenario, which is death. 
There is no small sin. Uh, Man likes to categorize sin. Now, we understand that there are great sins, but notice the confession writers go on to say that there's also no sin so great that anyone who brings repentance, that they cannot be forgiven of that sin. It really helps us keep in perspective uh, that there is nobody who is outside of the realm of repentance if they will simply come to Christ. So what are we learning about salvation today? Uh, Repentance is a necessary component of salvation. That's the first point I want us to consider this morning. If you want to turn to Acts chapter 11, we'll reference uh, that passage here in just a moment. But I want to establish the reality that repentance is a necessary component of salvation. Uh, The gospel, as we have learned, uh, is not asking Jesus into your heart. Uh, That is not the fullness of the gospel. Uh, Now, we realize that part of our recognition of Jesus Christ, there is this component of where we are acknowledging Uh, We're accepting uh, what Jesus Christ has, in fact, done for us, uh, but we cannot miss the reality of what is there, that repentance is a necessary component of it. It is impossible for us to uh, divide or take apart repentance and salvation and say they are two separate avenues. Uh, They are intertwined together. They have to be viewed together because they are part of the whole. Uh, In Acts chapter number 11, This is a passage, a reference to, uh, that we see Peter. And in the life of Peter, and of course in the first few chapters of the book of Acts, um, many times this concept or this principle of salvation, this concept especially between the Gentiles and the Jews, but I'd say even more specifically with the Jews, the Jews began to uh, challenge Peter and the gospel in which he was preaching. And one of those things that there was a a great divide on uh, was the reality of how did salvation come. If you drop down to uh, verse 14, and again, this is part of that uh, great account where the great sheet came down and and uh, Peter sees those those four corners uh, and you remember he says that there is nothing unclean there is nothing common or unclean and for a Jewish man uh, that was something to behold but you'll notice in verse 14 it says who shall tell the words whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved and as I began to speak The Holy Ghost fell on them as on us at the beginning. Then remembered I the word of the Lord. How that, he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. For as much then as God gave them the like gift as he did unto us. Who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? What was I that I could withstand God. That's quite a statement. Who was I or what was I? What was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. That last expression there in verse number 18 hath God granted repentance unto life, is a direct reference to give. 
It is repentance being given by grace through Jesus Christ. So really the overview this morning is that repentance is a gift. Uh, Repentance is the gift of God. It must be given before an individual can even repent. Uh, It is impossible for me today to just badger you enough to bring you to repentance. Um, I could yell repentance to you and I could say you're commanded to repent, to believe, you're commanded. But it will not be my words that will convince you of repentance. It will not be me that will put my finger upon your sin that you now will acknowledge. Repentance must be given and granted by God himself. And of course, in this particular account in Acts chapter number 11, we realize that there was this uh, great division between the Jews and the Gentiles. And the Jews were, were still quite perturbed by the reality that this gospel that, yes, for the most part, they had rejected, was now being offered to the Gentiles in whom they thought, well, they're not worthy of receiving the gospel. But the problem is, is most of the Jews didn't want it, but they also didn't want the Gentiles to have it. Uh, It's a wonderful thing to realize that if if the entirety of repentance was left to us to make sure that we could choose who got the gift of repentance, I dare say we would be very biased in how we passed out repentance. Uh, We would have a particular people group that we would say, I want to give repentance to them, but I'm not going to give repentance to them. I think we would be like what paragraph, uh, what the end of paragraph five says in the confession. We would pick all the people with the small sins and say, you can have repentance, but the people who have done just horrible sins, we're not going to grant repentance to you. But the reality is, is it is God who gives repentance. It is God alone who grants repentance. Now, you'll notice that when the gift was given to them, they glorified God. It's important to understand the order of how the writer in Acts uses the terminology here. When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. There was already an acknowledgement, so they glorified God as a result of what he had done. They glorified God because he had granted and given repentance. So first point this morning is the reality of repentance is a necessary component of salvation. Point number two today is repentance, like faith, is a gift of God. If, in fact, repentance is a gift of God, which it is, it means that it has no human origin to it. Uh, It is not based on any merits of even the best of men. Uh, Even the very best, most holy, most righteous person we could think about did not earn or their repentance did not originate within themselves. That's what a gift is. A true gift is given at no expense to the receiver. If you grant me a give me a gift, often that gift doesn't cost me anything. If I have to pay you for that gift, it ceases to be a gift. If you, at my birthday, say, Pastor, I've gotten you, I've gotten you a present, but it's going to cost you $19.95. Even if you paid $200 for it, but I have to pay $19.95, it's no longer a gift. I had to contribute to it. Human works have no part of our repentance. Uh, we have this idea that it's 50-50. God gives us 50% of the ability to repent, and then we provide the other 50%. That's not scriptural. It is given by God as a gift. There is no merits that we can earn or possess for it. 
Now, as we saw in paragraph one, third point, God gives his elect an awareness of sin and the heart to turn from it. So notice that true repentance has two components. There has to be an awareness of sin, but an awareness of sin is not repentance. Uh, If I was to ask you today, do you believe that there's sin in the world? And you answer in the affirmative. And then I say, do you believe that you sin? You say, of course I sin. You answer in the affirmative. That's not repentance. So just because I acknowledge sin and I acknowledge my own sin does not equal repentance. That's wrong. That's what's wrong with the gospel that just says all you have to do is acknowledge you're a sinner. To acknowledge I'm a sinner is just part of it. That's the awareness. But that's not repentance. Repentance, in its purest definition, means to have a change of mind towards or to have a heart that turns away. So what is true repentance? It is God giving his elect an awareness of sin, and as a result of that awareness, they are given the heart to turn from it. Now, with that being said, repentance does not mean that a person ceases to sin altogether. So I don't stop sinning. I don't come to the place where now what I used to do yesterday, I no longer sin today. No, I still have the ability, and I want you to make note of this, the desire to sin. I still today have a desire to sin. Now, we don't typically admit that on a Sunday morning. Uh, We didn't come in today and you were not quizzed as to say, what sin do you desire today? But you actually still desire sin. And you still find that sin is still very much prevalent in your life. And you still find that temptation is still very much in front of your eyes on an hourly basis. Probably a minute-by-minute basis is more accurate. But what does happen in repentance is that now the person who once had a greater desire for sin than righteousness now has a greater desire for righteousness than they do sin. You see, the converting process now changes what our ultimate desire is. Yes, I still desire sin as a believer. You still desire sin as a believer. But your greater desire as a truly converted believer is I have a greater desire for righteousness than I have for sin. Sin is still there. The old man is still within us. That old sinful nature, that old corrupt nature is still there. But the new nature is also there. And that is what is giving us the desire for this real righteousness. Next point, repentance does not end when one is converted. Repentance does not end when a person is converted. That day of your conversion, that day of your salvation, is not the day repentance ends. Repentance is unto life and to salvation, but it does not end on that, what we'll call that day of conversion. Uh, Speaking with many of you, you've begun to share with me how that your salvation testimony, it was not marked by a single moment in time. Uh, I grew up in a church that basically taught me that I needed to know the exact moment of my conversion. And I think I told you this a few, few years ago, or even maybe a few months ago, things run together so much. The, the actual date of my conversion is written in an old red Bible I have in my office. The exact, the exact date and the exact time. But I've told you over the time that I'm not so sure that even then I fully had a comprehension of what the salvation was all about. 
And so there is this process to where uh, we are being brought to an understanding of these things. And these times of repentance, uh, it doesn't end. Now, we're not being saved over and over again. Uh, one of the accusations that's been against uh, people who take a stand and, and stand on the doctrines of grace and talk about God's sovereignty uh, have often been accused, well, you must be one of those people that believes in getting resaved over and over again. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's not a matter of being resaved over and over again. Uh, it's a matter of understanding that repentance is a continual daily thing. God is going to give repentance to his people every day. It would be alarming to say, you know what? God didn't give me any desire today to repent of anything. The only reason we wouldn't have a desire is if we had lived a, sin, a sinless day. But we haven't had a sinless day. We've never had a sinless day in our life. So repentance is a continual work that is practiced together through Christian life. It is not a saving work. Repentance that's based on our own work doesn't save us. So what do we repent of? As the confession said in one of those paragraphs, uh, we repent of our known sins. Uh, we repent of specific known sins. Uh, it is very common for us to get very lazy in our prayer life and we say something like this, Lord, I repent of all my sins. Forgive me for all my sins. Now, in, in fact, that's probably true because your sins on a daily basis, it's more than one. So technically, we're right. Lord, forgive me for all of them. But imagine actually repenting to the place where we're actually specifically repenting of particular sins. The ones that are our stumbling block. The ones that are our issue. What I struggle with may not be the same thing that you struggle with, but it's still sin. And if we were to put them on a board and say, okay, everybody, you give me a list of all the small sins. This side of the room, give me the list of small sins. This side, give me the list of the big sins. We could probably create two lists. But on both of those lists, there is no small sin and there is no large sin. It is all sin. It's all breaking God's law. So the smallest sin that I have ought to be repented of. And so this is a continual repentance. And it's important to understand that, as the confession tells us, that it is the means, this repentance is the means by which believers are preserved unto salvation. Every sin is equally damning. There are no sins in a believer's life that are beyond God's forgiveness, though. So that's a great truth about God's mercy and God's loving kindness God's patient with us. There is no sin in a believer's life that is beyond God's forgiveness when one truly repents. It would be well out of our authority to tell someone, you could not possibly be saved. You could not possibly be brought to repentance. You have lived too horrible of a life. Every one of us probably have some famous person in our mind who there's no way that person, even if they were brought to repentance, that God would actually say, welcome into my kingdom. You would be biblically wrong because there is none that is beyond the reach of God. Again, humanly speaking, we all have a, an idea of what sin is acceptable. That I would tell you over the years 
sometimes we become less sensitive to certain sins. Our conscience starts to get a little bit seared about what used to convict us, and now we don't seem as bothered by it as we once did. That's part of that searing process that Paul warned Timothy about. That the conscience uh, is a God-given gift, but that conscience, if we begin to ignore sin in our life, and maybe our repentance, our prayer life is, Lord, just forgive me of all my sins. I've, I've got so many of them. Instead of going down the list, just forgive me of all. It leads to that searing of the conscience. I'm no longer listening to the prompting of the Spirit. The Spirit, as I read the Word, reminds me that I'm a sinner. He reminds me that I've been saved. He's reminded me that I've been kept. And so it's important that we understand what this repentance unto life and salvation really is. So when we think about this morning, about the very placement of this particular chapter, Remember, repentance appears in the confession right after the chapter on saving faith. Repentance has been said to be the twin sister of faith. In other words, we cannot think about saving faith without repentance, and we cannot think about repentance without thinking about saving faith. They are conjoined. So that when we see this, Uh, We cannot say, well, this is one avenue and this is another avenue. Faith and repentance cannot be disentangled, nor should we ever attempt to do so. We should never say, you know, this doesn't have anything to do with this or this is a separate idea. The concept here is, is that true saving faith is always infused with true repentance. So if I truly possess saving faith today, then there was a point of true repentance. So we should never attempt to separate those things. Christ saves through faith. So we should not just give what Christ does through faith, just give that place to repentance. However, faith knows that knows nothing of sorrow for sin and has no desire for holiness and is increasingly desirous of obedience to the will of God cannot be in possession of saving faith. So don't don't switch the places and say they're the same thing, but they, do, they cannot go without the other. I can't claim saving faith without true repentance of taking place. Now, as we mentioned, there are times when we often like to divide sins into categories or degrees. Uh, it became very popular a number of years ago to try to catalog or put a degree upon certain types of sins. Uh, there was at one point, I don't know if it ever gained traction, I'm very careful to not delve too much into those falsehoods that they were proclaiming, but there became a point where they were coming up with actual categories. And they would say, Here are, here's the degree of just how bad that sin is and what the consequences of that are. So that if I'm only guilty of this sin, I can still look forward to this in heaven. If I'm guilty of this over here, I'm still gonna go to heaven, but I'm gonna miss out on some of the better things in heaven. You see what's happening here. We're putting degrees. We're saying there are different levels of condition of what glory is going to look like. The reality is the repentance is a repentance for all and any sin. Now, it is true, if a particular sin uh, becomes known in a church, it can become known as a greater scandal, for example, 
than somebody who got caught telling a lie. Let's say somebody, we, we found out somebody in the church was lying. Uh, we might say lying is terrible. It's a sin. We know it's a sin. But there are some sins that if they happened, we would say, now that's really bad. Let me give you an example. 1 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul's writing about sexual sin in the church. And when you read this, if, you, if you're honest with yourself, or maybe I just need to be honest with myself, I read it and I say, this, this is really bad. That really needs to be repented of. But 1 Corinthians 5, notice Paul writes these words. He said, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you and such fornication as, as is not so much as named among the Gentiles. Now, I want you to stop and think what Paul was saying here. What's being reported among you in this church is something that's not even named in the world. This is something, this, this is like the, the definition of scandal. Okay, this is scandalous. You're saying, but boy, even the world out there is not doing this. That one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. Now notice he says that you're aware of this. You're aware of the sin and yet you're puffed up about it. You're, you're pride filled about it. And instead of mourning, being sorrowful for sin, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. Notice how serious Paul writes that this scandalous sin is. Not only should you not be puffed up, you should be mourning over this. And this man who's committed this should be taken away from that local congregation. Now, one of the things that's quickly disappearing away from churches, and a lot of people don't even believe this exists anymore, is the whole concept of church discipline. And saying that if within the membership of the group that there is an act, there is an act that is, that is uh, sinful, that's refused to be repented of, and it continues, and a church knows about it, and they keep letting it go, and everybody says, you know what, yeah, we know it's happening, but we just don't want to deal with it. That's what Paul's rebuking here. And he says, for verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit. Now remember, Paul's not in that church at Corinth. He's telling them, I am absent from you bodily, but I'm present with you in spirit, have judged already as though I were present. So what was Paul saying? That in those situations where Paul has been present before, there was a judgment that was going on within those local bodies that said, this is what's happening. Now, folks, I, I, I wouldn't encourage you to do this, but if, if you go on to that wonderful invention, the internet, and you start searching about church scandals, the stuff that's happened, it, it'll, it, 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 you won't be able to believe it. But the second part you won't be able to believe it is how much of it was never dealt with. It just disappeared, or they just ignored it. Because nobody wanted to judge someone else because what's become popular in society today is nobody has a right to judge me. God is my only judge. Can I stop and ask you what you just said? God's your only judge? So you don't want us to judge you. You just want God to judge you? That's a fearful thing. I mean, God's judging you anyway, whether you will let him do it. But some people, would just, it's just like so easy off the cuff, just say, you're not my judge. Only God is. Then I'll go ahead and step back. 
But you know, within these church settings, we are supposed to hold each other accountable. And we are supposed to say, listen, this is not acceptable. I guarantee you, if this happened at our church and we knew about it, you'd want something done. At least we should hope we want something done. Well, who are we to judge their actions? Really? Biblically, we're supposed to. Now, biblically, we're supposed to pray for reconciliation. We're supposed to pray for repentance, which is going to be another subject we're going to deal with. But notice he goes on and he says, as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, there is no stronger language in the scripture than what this next verse says. To deliver such a one unto Satan. For the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. So often... When you hear sermons preached on 1 Corinthians 5, it just begins with verses 6. and It's just it's a, it's a sermon on verses 6 and 7. And the preacher instructs us and commands us and rallies us to purge out the old leaven. And then he calls for the altar to be filled. All of you now purge out the leaven. What was the leaven in this context? This great sin that was taking place dealing with the reality of this great scandalous sin that you're just letting go and you're glorying in it. You see why exposition is so important? Because Paul had something greater in mind than just this individual sin. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul goes on, verse 9, he says, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. He's, he's basically saying when, when you're in the world, you are going to run across people who are guilty of this. I, I should not go out into my place of business, okay, and expect that I am not going to be working with a person who is guilty of sexual sin. I shouldn't expect to work with somebody who's, who is not covet, covetous. And I shouldn't expect to not work with an extortioner. And I certainly should expect I'm going to work with idolaters. But what Paul was saying is he said, you shouldn't find that inside the church. That's out there. But he said, if I tell you to stay away from them, then I got to pull you out of the world, which is the very world in which we're supposed to go to with the gospel. But he says, but now I've written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother. Look at this. Any man that is called a brother, don't keep company with a brother who's a fornicator, who's covetous, who's an idolater, who's a railer, who's a drunkard, who's an extortioner with such a one, no, not to eat. Do you understand the seriousness of what Paul is saying here? He's saying, you have the, you have the ability to be in the world with the people who are not believers who do these things. But if you have somebody you call a brother who's doing these things, don't even eat with him. Now, folks, when this happens in churches today, the church is labeled as hate-filled. If a church 
by church discipline, exercises that discipline, and moves them outside of the church membership role, they listen to the man or the woman who was excommunicated, if you will, and say, this is what the church did to me. And who usually gets the bad rap? The church. Because they'll say the church doesn't have authority over that individual. But if you study scripture, that church, that individual that submitted themselves to the authority of that church, to the membership of that church, is saying we are willfully being held accountable for what and who we are. And yet Paul says this, and this is so important. He says, for what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Paul says, I have nothing to do with judging the sins of the unbelieving world. But what he does say, do not ye judge them that are within. But them that are without, God judges. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Now, that's a scandalous sin. But the question I want to ask you this morning is, how far does that go? If we simply just believe that there are degrees and there are certain things that could, uh, where is that line? What constitutes a scandal? What constitutes something really bad inside of a church? The reality is, is there are people who we can account or count them as not a great sinner, uh, they're a middle-of-the-road sinner. They're not real bad. They're not real good either, but they're not like real, real bad. But what does Romans 3.23 tell us? There is none good. There's none righteous. There's not a single one that seeks after God. So if, if we start saying and degrading people, we're going to get to the place where we're going to say, well, you don't need to repent. You don't need repentance because you're not so bad. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Sometimes in our conversations with one another, and I'm not thinking of anything specific today, someone may come to you in confidence, and they may be another believer. And maybe they're not coming to you like a person goes to a priest and confessing, but they come to you and they say, you know what, I'm, I'm involved in some things I really shouldn't be involved in. Can I just give you just a piece of pastoral advice that you can take or you can leave it? Don't begin that conversation when they tell you that by saying, well, that's okay. We're so afraid to acknowledge that somebody is telling us that they're involved in something that's needing repentance. When we confirm and we say, well, that's okay. Don't tell them it's okay. You may acknowledge that they're accepting the responsibility or accountability for their actions. But oftentimes we say, well, that sin is okay. Well, what would be the level that we would say, well, that's really not okay? And what I mean by that, what if that sin was committed against your child? What if that sin was committed against your spouse? What if that sin was not a personal sin towards just themselves, but a sin towards another person in the body? I would tell you that if they were confessing a sin towards your child or a sin towards your spouse, we might have a different view of how we say that's okay. But in the eyes of God, again, what sin is scandalous? Is it this degree that Paul talks about, where it has to be something that's not named among the Gentiles? Or is it a scandal if we continue just to allow sin? Because every sin is an offense against God. 
It's an offense against his law. James 2.10 tells us that, that if we fail to obey or we stumble in one point, we're guilty of all. So the repentance required of sinners is repentance for sin, not only generally, but specifically. And we'll continue with that in mind over the next few weeks. Every sin is worthy of damnation. Even the very smallest is worthy of damnation. So next week, we'll get a little bit further into this overview. But I want to leave you just kind of thinking about this to consider for this week. I want you to think about, if you would, if this is obviously totally voluntary for you, but repentance itself, I want you to think about the statement, repentance is not a virtue. And I want you to think about what do I mean by that? When I say repentance is not a virtue in and of itself, repentance will never, just repentance alone will never merit God's favor. This is where we're going with this. It also doesn't obligate God. We, we can get confused and begin to think repentance merits God's favor, which means he's obligated to save me. But understand something, that repentance is not the effective cause of why God's pardoning your sin. That's not the cause. Okay, does everybody understand? That's not the actual cause of it. Because what we can start to do is we can start to say, well, the repentance was the cause of my salvation. Repentance is not itself a satisfaction for sin. It's the work of Christ alone. Now, somebody might say, you are being really technical today. Folks, I don't want to get it wrong. And I don't want to get to the place where we don't fall into the error of attributing something to a sinful man that can only belong to Jesus Christ as Messiah. Remember, to rely on our own repentance as anything that entitles us or earns God's favor would be to take the very glory from Christ himself and make salvation dependent upon our good work. That can never be. Nobody really truly understands the gravity and the awfulness of our sin until we see sin the way a holy God sees it. I'll dare say it's nearly impossible to have a single conversation with an individual to make them fully see, see sin how God sees it. And even some of our, our modern definitions of sin have confused people. When we just say, you know, sin is missing God's mark. It is, but what mark? What is that mark that we're missing? What is it when we sin against the glory of God? What is it when we, don't, we fail to see actually God's glory in realizing just how offensive even the smallest sin is and just how important repentance is? So next week, we'll talk a little bit more about repentance not being this virtue, and then we'll probably get into paragraph one and kind of deal with this concept of what were the confession writers talking about, about the riper years, okay, and, and what that means uh, for our study. All right, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll be dismissed into our time of fellowship this morning. Uh, we won't do any questions today, but I want you to think on these things, and uh, then next week we'll save some time at the end to put what we learned today and then next week together, and then hopefully we'll be able to have a very interactive uh, Q&A next week. All right, let's pray. 
Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning, and we thank you for the study. And uh, Lord, we know we have just begun to scratch the surface of repentance. And Lord, as we attempt to go through this study over the next few weeks, we know it would be impossible to fully exhaust all that the Bible teaches. But Lord, we, we don't want to miss anything. And Lord, I pray that we would learn together. We would be encouraged and edified as we learn and study. And that, Lord, this would not just lead to head knowledge, but would actually lead us to how we can encourage one another in our own walk and in our own life. Lord, I pray you continue to draw this church closer together. Lord, we're thankful for what you're doing amongst this body of believers. And Father, we know that all the glory and praise doesn't go to us, but it goes to you and your Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we just pray that we would get these concepts settled in our heart and mind. Lord, we pray for this time of fellowship. Lord, may it be profitable to our souls as we prepare our hearts for the morning service today. Lord, as we can come before you again in the singing of the hymns and the reading of the scriptures and the preaching of the word. And Lord, if there would be anyone here today, anyone by way of live stream, who has yet to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, that according to your perfect sovereign will, that their soul would indeed be converted. We thank you and praise you. And it's in Christ's name I ask these things. Amen. All right, we will see you at 1115.